I'm Lindsay Claiborne. And I'm Mumu Shu, and you are listening to Beyond the Microscope. Hi, everyone. We are back with another episode. Today's guest is Rachel Sachs, professor of law at Washington University in St. Louis. Hi, Rachel. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Our very first question is, what is it that a professor of law does, and what is it that you do? A professor of law does much the same thing that I hope most other professors do. I research, I teach, I uh, contribute to the university in whatever ways I can. Uh, And so I teach property law and courses in intellectual property law. Right now I'm gearing up for a seminar on innovation in the pharmaceutical industry for the spring. And my research focuses on those areas, thinking about the ways in which different areas of law, intellectual property, food and drug regulation, healthcare law, all relate to each other to affect incentives for innovation in new technologies. So I'm going to ask uh, an obvious question, I guess. We are a podcast that speaks to women in STEM fields. How would you say being a law person dealing with uh, pharmaceuticals and other things like that, how do you fit into the, the STEM field? And do you feel like you do? Well, I, I came out of the STEM world. I initially went to college thinking I, I wanted to be a scientist. I did scientific research for for several summers and, and during the year. And, and ultimately, I, uh, I realized that I didn't love the process of doing science enough. But I loved ideas and I loved thinking about science and and its implications sort of more generally. So um, I really wanted to stay involved. And so when I went to law school, I knew that I wanted to do something with intellectual property, something with health, thinking about science and medicine. So I picked up a master's in public health so that I could keep taking math classes, basically. and and so although you know I'm I'm not a scientist I I long for you know maybe I would do it differently if I could go back but I love talking to scientists hearing about what they're working on thinking about what the latest breakthroughs is are um, and what can we do as lawyers to help pave the way for all of the new discoveries that we really need Rachel before we sort of get into your daily work. Um, You had mentioned that you got a master's in public health. How did that transition to a law degree? So I got them at the same time. I actually knew before I went to law school that I wanted to hopefully end up in academia. Uh, And so rather than going to a grad school in philosophy and bioethics, um, or even in public policy, I opted to follow my parents' do-something-practical advice and went to law school. Uh, but but I knew I wanted to do this, and I knew I wanted to get some more sort of experience, particularly quantitative experience. So uh, doing the master's at the same time as I did the law degree was really great. You know, you can't read... Uh, law books for three years straight without um, uh, having some sort of uh, mental crisis of confidence. And so being able to go back and forth between the problem sets and the casebook reading, uh, especially in my 2L and 3L year, was really huge. Do you find that that sort of having the the basis in, in scientific knowledge and research gives you 
either a, a foot a head like a step up or or just an extra um talking point when you're dealing with people in the industries that you're working with i mean is it do they look at you like oh you couldn't possibly know what you're talking about and you're like no actually i do uh if they tell me i couldn't possibly know what i'm talking about i think it's for different reasons um uh so i i think it gives me a little bit of credibility i can speak more knowledgeably about uh economics and about statistical methods and i can look at you know, the studies that we're using to evaluate policy and consider whether these results are generalizable, consider what the uh, real pros and cons are of this kind of effort. So I really do think it's been um, beneficial for me. I think it gives me a little bit of credibility when I'm dealing with physicians or economists. Uh, when I'm dealing with scientists, I, I mostly just want them to tell me what they're working on because <laughs> I'm always so interested. Now you know how we feel. I know. Uh, all right. So let's go back to uh, the topic of your research. Can you elaborate a little bit about what it is that your research is in? Yeah, absolutely. So when when people ask me what, what I study, I usually say innovation policy, which is my way of thinking about the intersection of different areas of law. So in law school, you would take a class in patent law, or you'd take a class in food and drug regulation, or you'd take a class in health law. But if you work for a pharmaceutical company, or if you're trying to make policy, all of these areas are actually really interrelated, and they all affect incentives for innovation, whether patients have access, all along sort of the value chain of uh, innovation research and development, and ultimately approval. So I think about the ways in which these areas of law relate to each other or more often fail to relate to each other in promoting innovation. So, uh, you know, a very practical uh, example would be I recently published a paper about uh, diagnostics uh, in which I sort of pointed out that the health law people are over here complaining about uh, what Congress has done to reimbursement of diagnostics through Medicare. Uh, the patent law people are over here complaining about some decisions that the Supreme Court has issued in that area. And the FDA law people are over here looking at what the FDA is doing with regulations, but no one is looking at them all together. And all together, they have a different effect than you might expect on industry than when you look at them individually. And that should matter. And we should be cognizant of that as we look at them individually. How do you keep tabs on all of that? I read a lot of blogs. <laughs> my, <laughs> my RSS feeder is really large. Um, yeah, I, you know, to be honest, it's, it's tough. I am very fortunate to be in fields that are changing very quickly, but it also means, unfortunately, I do need to narrow the kinds of things I focus on. So recently, I've been working a lot and talking a lot about drug prices and thinking a lot about the drivers 
um, of drug prices to the extent we think there's a problem there, which which ones are problematic, why, what can and should we do about it. Um, but it means I've sort of ignored, there's a couple of Supreme Court cases this year about patent law, which I've sort of let go because I have to narrow the kinds of, of things within patent law that I'm focusing on. So does that mean the, what was it, the EpiPen? The EpiPen. <laughs> Oh, goodness, the EpiPen. Uh, Let's let's hear your opinion about that, yeah. Look, it's like this perfect storm of here's the playbook for how to to game the system in every possible way. So the EpiPen is, it's actually a little bit more complicated than it was usually portrayed in the media. So basically, you know, over a period of several years, the price rose from about $100 to $600 for a two-pack. Um, and, and part of the reason that people are getting outraged about this is that more and more people are in high-deductible health insurance plans. And so they're being exposed to the full $600 cost of it at the point of sale. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a really big problem. They weren't seeing that before, even if um, uh, even if they had uh, some some copay that they were paying out of pocket. And so... Uh, Mylan has just been engaging in every little trick you might want to pursue uh, to increase their revenues here. And my favorite one, because it's the most, it seems good when you say it, but it's the most sort of dastardly, um, is the one where they're trying to get the EpiPen listed um, as a preventive service because if it's a preventive service rather than a treatment uh, then it has to be covered by insurers with no cost sharing which means that patients won't pay anything when they buy it and you might think that's good and and what we do definitely want is for all people who might um, suffer from anaphylactic shock to have access to a safe effective way of preventing um, that condition and of, of going further into uh, a distress. But at the same time, what that actually means is that we're all going to pay for it. It's just not going to be reflected in the individual's costs at the point of sale. So it's not as if it, the cost magically goes away. It's just dispersed more generally. And that's how health insurance works, and we should be happy about that. But we've been rightfully sort of wary of calling everything a preventive service um, because otherwise we get in these problems. So talking about um, stuff like the EpiPen and, and the, the public outcry or, or um, is a lot of what you do translating sort of how all these laws and things fit together that the average person doesn't understand or, or you know, is it, we've had a lot of this discussion in this current election cycle and, and afterwards of how much the public understands and cares versus what's actually going on. Are you sort of dealing with that middle ground or are you only dealing with what's actually going on? Uh, I, I like to think I, I have the ability to do both. Uh, so the public facing things I do, you know, when I blog or when I give interviews, what I'm really trying to do is translate the policy changes we're seeing into, 
practical questions about how this is going to affect other parts of the system, how it's going to affect people, what it really means uh, in practice, trying to cut out sort of the bureaucratic language. But my research has to be um, uh, is pitched more academically. And in my research, I don't want it to be so tied to current events. So I get to explore a lot of these questions more generally or at a more uh, theoretical level. So, you know, it may be that uh, I'm blogging about the relationship between um, weakening FDA approval standards in the 21st Century Cures Act and increased expenditures in Medicare and Medicaid, whereas right now I'm starting to think about a more general paper um, on uh, the links between FDA approval and insurance coverage, both in practice and in theory. So, so I, I try to really have the two sides of my work reinforce each other, but they operate on very different timelines, as as you both know well. So, uh, I, I'm I'm a bit curious when you mentioned that you sort of read a lot of different articles and you sort of try to make these links and connections. Is there any quantitative data that you're gathering, or is it more uh, of, I'm not even quite sure, of an analytical nature? Yeah, so some of it is me shouting about how I would like to have data, but don't. And and unfortunately, so much of what law professors do is we sit at our desks and we think about how might things be, or how should they be, um, but so much of what we do in healthcare law and in patent law and food and drug law, it, it depends on empirical assumptions about the world. And so I have tried to uh, start at least engaging in collaborative projects with economists, with um, doctors, with people who are more more teched up than I am and who can, you know, look at, at data sets because I know enough to know that I shouldn't be doing it on my own. Um, but I also know enough to be able to, to look at, you know, here's, and to, to gather data and to, uh, to figure out what might be important. So I have a project now on the ways in which agencies coordinate with each other to promote health innovation. And it so happens that the NIH uh, is required to produce a report every year on those subjects, and they release a number of statistics, and they release information on individual projects. And so I can go look for that, and I can use those statistics, and I can use those descriptions in my work. I have a older question, but it comes down to sort of uh, is a patent law question. Or not patent, but I guess it was patent. That there's these, there's this fight over the genetic testing. You know that there's like one method to do a certain genome test with. I think it was for like the breast cancer gene. Yes. And the ability to to, to patent that process as opposed to are you patenting a gene because they've determined that that gene is the one that the BRC or whatever the gene is. What is? Have you met, dealt with any of that stuff? Have you studied any of those kind of cases? 
Yes, absolutely. So, so there's two separate things. So the Supreme Court case that dealt with Myriad Genetics and its patents on um, the BRCA genes actually only dealt with the patents on the genes itself. Um, but there were other cases which dealt with patents on uh, the method of doing the diagnostic test. And exactly as you said, the patent literally just says like a method for um, detecting whether there's a mutation by sequencing the, the gene. Um, and so it's very, it, it encompassed all ways of doing it. And uh, to the extent that we were worried about giving one company a monopoly on that in ways that we don't worry about giving one company a monopoly on a drug, uh, there were concerns about that. So, you know, early studies suggested that Myriad's test uh, didn't account for all possible kinds of mutations that it was missing, um, uh, large rearrangements, or that it was missing uh, particular kinds of uh, rearrangements. And so those studies were only possible because uh, the gene wasn't patented um, in parts of Europe. So uh, knowing what Myriad knew, they didn't have an obligation to immediately update their test because they were still the only one able to offer it. Um, and then they eventually did. Uh, and now what's happened is that they've built up such a database uh, of uh, mutations, a database of genetic sequences that they um, have probably the best test on the market. So, so this is an interesting situation in which sort of a short-term monopoly has given them a superior market position. Uh, and that's something we hadn't really seen before in other health technologies, although it's something that we'll probably see coming more with big data and big data type approaches to healthcare. So you had mentioned um, sort of the effects of what happens over in Europe. Is that something that uh, happens a lot that you have to consider about uh, the things that are happening in other countries? You know, honestly, more and more these days, I'm thinking about what's happening in uh, mostly in Europe, but also in some other countries. And the reason is uh, that there are interesting things happening in other countries that affect what the FDA does, or there are interesting harmonization efforts happening uh, and so one example is that the EMA, uh, basically the, the European equivalent of the FDA, um, is more free about sharing some kinds of data about drugs that were rejected or about different kinds of things with drugs than is the FDA. And um, that data, you know, it, it doesn't, uh, it's not irrelevant for us in the U.S. So if a drug that's under... Um, review at the FDA is rejected for a certain reason in Europe, right, that becomes public. Uh, and so to the extent that more data is released um, in Europe, that becomes available to researchers here. So, so that's something that people are looking at because the FDA has been criticized recently and, and on, on an ongoing basis, but more recently for um, its lack of transparency on some kinds of um, metrics in terms of when there are really bad um, safety profiles, in terms of why it's uh, doing things. Uh, and so looking for that information elsewhere 
uh, can be very useful. I still keep going back to like, how do you keep track of everything? It seems like an endless stream of information and constantly changing policies and approaches to things. It It is. Um, but also at the same time, you know, little, these agencies move really slowly. So, you know, when there were um, guidances will get stuck in FDA for years and years, the, the 21st Century Cures Act, which was just signed into law today, I remember reading the first draft of it in January 2015. Um, and so there's so much. And so some of it I, I can just say, yeah, I know there's this thing that happened um, about this drug, but beyond that, I don't know. Um, but at the same time, I can I can follow some of these uh, in more detail over a period of, of years, really, and and getting to know the the individual laws, the individual regulations. There's a, there's a period of catch up that happens, uh, but it definitely I I have to stay on top of it. You had actually mentioned the Supreme Court earlier. Uh, are there any big cases that are coming up that will be of influence? I mean, not just in general, but sort of more specifically toward what you do. Um, it's it's possible. So the Supreme Court uh, is currently considering whether to grant um, a case called Amgen versus Sandoz, which is this case about uh, what companies who want to bring biosimilars to market. So um, uh, let me explain very briefly. So uh, in the pharmaceutical context, many drugs used to be small molecule drugs, and you can make generic versions of those small molecule drugs. And we've had a pathway for approving those small molecule drugs since the early 80s, the Hatch-Waxman Act, um, and that's been really well established. And then we actually didn't have a pathway for approving, I'll say, generic versions of biosimilars, which, uh, sorry, generic versions of biologics, which are called biosimilars because they're not precisely um, uh, bioequivalent, but they're similar. Uh, we have we didn't have a pathway until actually the Affordable Care Act uh, created a pathway for their approval. But of course, uh, Congress can be counted on to be unclear in what's required of biosimilar applicants trying to come to market. So um, there are cases now um, uh, pending or that may be granted by the Supreme Court, which are about what do biosimilar companies, what do branded um, biologic companies have to tell each other, what do they have to do, and how long is it going to take for us to get these new products um, uh, approved so that we can decrease prices modestly, if not as dramatically as in the generic drug context. Uh, and so that's one to look out for in the next couple of weeks, whether it's going to be granted or not. Is there something, are there, besides the Supreme Court cases, what other things are you watching for do you think will have a, a, the biggest impact in, in your field that you study coming in the, down the pipeline? So I'm always watching to see what the FDA is doing in terms of putting out guidance on new types of technologies, in terms of approving particular new drugs. Um, and it seems like there's, there's so much happening at the FDA. And so I'm focusing on only the, you know, the D part of it mostly. But even there, there's a lot to, 
consider. So in, in particular right now, the FDA has to make some choices about things like um, what kinds of evidence are they going to be uh, allowing companies to submit going forward in um, secondary approvals uh, for new uses of drugs that are already on the market. Um, they're going to have to establish some new pathways um, for approving new kinds of technologies. Um, this is all after the 21st Century Cures Act, and so I'll be looking at um, those guidances and those rules as they come out. Um, I'm also watching to see decisions uh, that insurance companies make about when and whether to cover certain kinds of drugs that are approved. Uh, and, and those will often make the news. And I, I have a number of news roundups that do uh, some of my work for me, for sure. Uh, but there's, there's never a day where um, there's nothing in my feed that's, that's interesting to me that I'm not going to uh, uh, read an article or two about or look at a little more closely. Interesting. Well, um, so I think that's all the questions that Lindsay and I have. Thanks, Rachel. Yeah, of course. You too. Hey, you're still here. Thanks for sticking around to the end of the show. Help other people find this podcast by giving us a rating on iTunes. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Scope Podcast. Our theme music was composed by The Copy Cuts. <laughs>